Today's the third Sunday in Advent, and Advent is, as you may know, probably know by now, this season that's different than Christmas, the parallel season that our culture is celebrating already and right now. Advent historically has been a time in the church and for the church since about the fifth century when we've slowed down and said, all right, Christmas is coming, let's prepare Uh, Let's wait, watch, do the things that Jesus said, pray, long, yearn, hunger. It's been a time and a season for giving up, for being sacrificial, for denying ourselves, for fasting even. Very different than what the uh, world out there is doing, our Christian culture. Uh, In the East, uh, I shared this with a few people a week ago, Uh, in the Eastern church, they don't call it Advent even, they call it the Nativity Fast. It's a time of prayer and a time of waiting and sort of setting everything else aside that we can be attentive uh, to the Lord so that we can live in the shoes of the Jewish people who waited for Messiah for a season before we celebrate the birth of Christ, the incarnation of God, and so then do that with incredible joy. The Jewish people had ideas about Messiah, a unique anointed one, a special person from God. He was a prophet. He would be a king. He would liberate the people of God. He would lead them. He would reign victorious. He would restore Israel to its once and again prominence. He would be the one who would usher in this new realm, this new reality, this new kingdom that would bring God great glory over all of the earth. Uh, The passage of scripture we're going to read in a moment and that Jeff kind of prayed alludes to that in the end of the glory of God over all things. Despite uh, or with different ideas about Messiah going all the way back to Genesis 3, uh, some say there are references as early as the Torah, some say Genesis 3, the books of Moses, passages of scripture from throughout the Old Testament that point to in different ways, some very clearly, some cryptically of Messiah, of anointed one, Christ in Greek. Uh, David Brickner was here with us uh, last week and unpacked a few, two weeks ago, and unpacked a few of those. They're mostly in the books of the prophets and the words of the prophets in the, uh, the Bible and the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jews call the scriptures. David, when he was here uh, two weeks ago, uh, picked three of those from throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament, and he called those Jewish Christmas cards. If you were here, you remember that. And he showed us how they uh, pointed to Messiah and specifically how they were prelude to described and helped uh, us see Jesus as the Christ. Last Sunday morning, we looked at Isaiah 40, just the beginning of that uh, first section. That's a real transition in the book of Isaiah from judgment to restoration and healing and mercy and consolation and comfort. You're familiar with the beginning words of Isaiah 40 that really start the second half of Isaiah. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Comfort, comfort ye, my people. They're the first words in Handel's Messiah, uh, pulled from that uh, sort of transition in Isaiah. And we talked last week about how that comfort, as the scripture above us says, isn't just comfort in our hurting and our loneliness and our depression, though all of that is included, but specifically in our angst, in our sin, in the weight of our lives that are bearing down upon us because the sin in which we live and are a part of and participate in and the sin of the world, how that compiles upon us and causes us to suffer directly and indirectly. And so the announcement is, comfort, comfort ye my people. Your sins have been paid for. Your sin has been set aside. And we don't know the full story until we get to Jesus, but we talked about some of that last night. We're going to look this morning at another passage from Isaiah a little bit later in kind of a, kind of a third section of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 61. Before we read that, though, let me pray. Pray with me. 
God, help us to be attentive to you as we have in uh, prayer and worship and song and time with children and through Dave and Natalie. We've heard your voice. We've been reminded of your heart. We know your way. Help us to be attentive to you now as we read from Isaiah those ancient words. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are receptive soil to your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words deviate or stray or are inconsistent in any way with your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So reading this morning from what some scholars call third Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, starting at verse one. Um, Listen closely. This is the word of God. I could shorten it. I think I might read the whole thing. Uh, It's not too long, but uh, it's rich. And it really all goes together as one prophetic utterance, prophetic word, poem. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the vengeance. That's a complicated word in Hebrew. It's not about anger. And the, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil, oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities they have been de- that have been devastated for generations. And the idea, the period in time that Isaiah is talking about is after the fall of the northern kingdom, Israel, and after the fall of the southern kingdom, Judah, and after 50, 60 years in exile in Babylon, and now this restoration is beginning to happen as people come home. Strangers will, sh- will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners, foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches will you boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And we heard that use of that double last week. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make me and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seed to grow. So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations." And as with almost all psalms and sort of packages of Scripture, the beginning, the first words, the first sentence, sometimes the first word, like in the book of Genesis, Genesis, beginning, really say what is to come and encapsulate what is to come. And in this case, verse 1 goes like this, the Spirit of the Lord, the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, 
And the idea is those who are unjustly captives or in prison or in jail. And release from darkness for the prisoners. And in some ways that can be translated the blind. The blind. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God says to Isaiah to speak. God gives these words to Isaiah and says, speak these words. These are the words, the message I want to communicate through you. You are my mouthpiece. You are the one through whom I will speak. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news, gospel, to the poor. And who are the poor? The word in Hebrew is anawim. Let's say that together, anawim. And very clearly, the poor are not just lacking the anawim in financial resources for whatever reason, but specifically, they are the poor, the afflicted, the humble, the meek, because they have suffered at the hands of the rich and powerful, because they have been oppressed, because they have been put down, because they have been abused, because they have been taken advantage of. Those very specifically are the anawim. They are the poor and the humbled and the weak. And this chapter of Isaiah is directed at them. This message from Isaiah is directed specifically at them and for them. There was in that day, as some would say or acknowledge there are today, poor who are sufferers, not because of their own circumstances, their own choice, their own laziness, but because of where they have been placed in the world. Because of how they are, who they are. And so the promise is relief from oppression. From being taken advantage of because they have no power or leverage. And the word of the Lord declares an end to their suffering and specifically suffering that is related to their poverty or their position. There are kinds of suffering that are not related to one's economic or financial or social position. Those are spoken of elsewhere in Scripture. Here the word is to those who suffer because they have been oppressed, suffer because they are disadvantaged, suffer because of their social or financial or socioeconomic position. And this really quickly for many of us gets both personal and what we call or feel is political. Because the message or the application in our context is difficult to avoid or to deny or to dance around. Some say that Jesus was not political and that we should not talk politics in the church. It was the great politician of the day who sought to put Jesus to death, Herod the Great. 
and so killed his entire generation of little boys. It was the emperor, the chief politician of the empire, who oversaw and approved the governor and his magistrates putting Jesus to death and putting a sign above his head, King of the Jews. There were poor, there were those who suffer financially, there were those who were taken advantage of. They were, in many instances, had been for generations, even hundreds of years, the enslaved people of God who had been moved against their will to the low place on the totem pole. And God says to you who I'm restoring, bringing back to Israel, bringing home, to those of you who have suffered at the hands of oppressors, here's the good news. And there are still those kind of people today in our world, certainly, in our nation, yes, in our county even, if we looked around. in our county, in our state, which if it was its own nation would be, as you know, the seventh largest economy in the world. During a time when the stock market continues to reach new highs and unemployment figures are at 50-year lows and there are still poor among us, out there, around here, and here, there are working poor and non-working poor, healthy and fit people and disabled people who are poor, people who are well and people who are terminally ill who are all poor, who have been taken advantage of, discarded, left on the edges in the periphery of society. People who are old and people who are young who are poor, people living on the streets in their 60s, 70s, 80s, people living on the streets in their 4s, 5s, 6s, 7s, 8s. I'm not trying to make us feel uncomfortable. I'm just trying to figure out the scriptures for myself. Some people consider Isaiah 61 to be a messianic text, a classic messianic text. Other people don't. Whether Jewish people then or now consider these words to be messianic, or words that alluded to the Messiah who was to come, Jesus one day, right at the beginning of his ministry, stood up in front of everyone and embraced or claimed these words from Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Sounds an awful lot like the Spirit empowering that Isaiah talks about in the latter chapters of his book. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He was a regular churchgoer. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, just like that. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What in the world could that mean? 
except that Jesus is defining his mission. He's identifying with Isaiah 61. He's identifying with the poor. What would good news for poor look like? If it looked like wealth and the prosperity gospel is where it's at, but studies show us that wealthy people are no happier or wiser or in better relationships or lead more meaningful lives or have greater claim on heaven and eternity or the kingdom of God than middle class people. And Jesus might suggest the same. And that the opposite may actually be true. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus isn't against rich people. There's good news for them, for sure, throughout the Gospels, for, the, for us. But there may be especially good news for the poor, who then and now don't get a lot of good news. Especially good news for the poor. And not just the poor in spirit. Matthew in his Gospel puts into Jesus' mouth at the beginning of the Beatitudes in chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that is true, those are the meek. And in the gospel and in the kingdom, they too are blessed. But Luke is more explicit when he gives us those words of Jesus and says, simply, blessed are the poor. Not blessed are the poor in spirit, but blessed are those who don't have anything. Blessed are those in him and in his kingdom and in the gospel and in this world that is to come are those who just are financially without, who have been oppressed, taken advantage of, and left on the edges. What might, what could Jesus' declaration, his affirmation, his claiming, proclaiming, and his embracing of Isaiah's message that seemed not only prophetic but messianic mean for us today? Two weeks ago, in an, a really strange juxtaposition that I hadn't really planned, spent some time at Glide Memorial Church on a Saturday morning. And then strangely went right from there to Grace Cathedral, just up the hill. And the juxtaposition was unnerving. That there at Glide are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the poorest people on the peninsula who have less than nothing. Surrounded, invited in, ministered to, cared for with all manner of baggage and problems and dot, dot, dot. And then on the top of the hill, I don't know, maybe the most impressive cathedral in California. Gilded, majestic, expensive. Does God only dwell with the poor? Absolutely not. Does God only dwell with the rich and with those who have resources? Absolutely not. But there is specifically in Christ and in his kingdom, Jesus declares, as Isaiah had, good news for the poor. Good news for the poor. Now, the Jews have different ideas, as I understand it. I'm not Jewish. Didn't grow up in a Jewish context. But the Jews have had then and today still various ideas about when Messiah would come. About who Messiah would be and what he would look like and all of those things. But also about when he would come. When he would show up. 
There were some who thought, well, God's got a timeline and he's mapped out this and the, the, the time has been appointed and it's just sort of a timeline deal and it'll happen when it happens in God's timing, in God's good time, in the fullness of time, Paul wrote in Galatians. There are others who thought uh, when things get really, really bad, when sin is so pervasive, when we just can't go any lower, when things are going to be horrible, when we're in exile and we have no hope, then Messiah will come. And there were others still who thought that Messiah will come when we get really good. And don't we live with sort of that mentality, that sort of way of functioning? When we're really good, we'll get good stuff. When we're really good, when we're really holy, when we're really pure, who were the people in Jesus' time who had this worldview with regard to Messiah? The Pharisees, of course. They were trying to get everyone to be really good because then Messiah would come and then God would bless Israel and then Israel would be restored. God would have to do that. We don't really, I don't, I don't know. But we know when Jesus came and that he was Messiah and we know what he affirmed that he was about. And if he was about those things, including good news, especially for the poor, then you would think that the people who live by his name and in his power and are filled with his spirit and seek to follow him and claim his name and his salvation would be similarly interested in good news for the poor. Would you not? I saw a line uh, this, morning, uh, this week by a guy named Jonathan Martin that just kind of again, unnerved me. There might be some truth in it. If your Christianity makes emperors feel comfortable and oppressed people feel unsafe, it's time for a grand reversal. Hmm. My hope is that as we celebrate Advent, as we move toward Christmas and in so many ways are already immersed in Christmas and, and doing Christmas, which is good and fine and great, that we will slow down as we have been called to through Advent and be attentive to the one who sort of gets pushed out during the busyness of Christmas. Attentive to his word, to his will, to his way, which is in every way counter to our natural way and to the ways of our world and our culture. May we slow down and give him our attention, trusting that as we do, not only will we see his kingdom, but we will experience his kingdom and we will have a foretaste of his kingdom to come. May we long for that, may we yearn for that, may we be filled with that desire as we continue another week, week and a half through Advent. I want to close with uh, the words that I closed with last week from Tish Harrison Warren. She writes, to practice Advent is to lead into an almost cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief and it reminds us that all of us in one way or another are not only wounded by the evil in this world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. 
May we overcome those things. One commentator says about Isaiah 61, that it is a single poem with a single theme. Yahweh appoints the prophet to announce to the poor that they are glorious among the nations. Underlying the poem is the biblical conviction that the Anawim, the poor, victims of the wicked who wait for Yahweh, will see Yahweh reverse their situation. Since injustice insults Yahweh, the creator, creator of a just world. Logan, in leading us in the lighting of the Advent wreath this morning, Advent candle, read these words, light gives life. A city of light is a zone of life in a world under the reign of death. In the city of light, the sick are cared for, the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed. The life of God's city is resurrection life. A city of light is a city of hope. May we, the people of God, the church universal, the communion of saints around the world, more and more as we move through Advent and each day, become that city of light. And may God be glorified in that. Let's pray. For your words from Isaiah, God, through Isaiah, we give you thanks. Help us to be attentive. Attentive to the Messiah who embraced them. Forgive us when we are not. When we're distracted, when we're sidelined, when we'd rather think of other things, when we allow our lives and our minds and our hearts to become too full. Full of ourselves, full of our own wishes, full of our own desires. But bring about your kingdom in us. Reign in us. Have your way in your dominion, in and through your church. And in all of those things, as Isaiah wrapped up, be glorified throughout the earth and in this space. Amen.